Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bazaar. I'm your host, and today we'll be interviewing Dick Bine of Bine Blueberry Farms. How are you doing today, Dick? Doing great. Doing, doing real good. It's raining here today. We are very dry, so I'm very happy. Oh, that's good. And so is that good for the blueberries? Oh, yeah. We, were, we had gone about three weeks. Of course, you're not into the heat of June and July, but you're still dry. And just to get rain, and it's a slow rain, and it's a, just a great rain, and I'm very excited. We've got six tenths so far. Oh, that's amazing. So how I know Dick is a flavor of Georgia, just so the audience knows, and him and Mark Cates of Winging Out um, Wings uh, restaurant formed a barbecue sauce with blueberries, which is pretty incredible. It's a blueberry barbecue sauce. And and anyone who's ever been to Aqua Alado in Italy or in Washington, D.C. knows uh, how amazing blueberry barbecue sauce could be. I say this barbecue sauce that Mark and Dick have created is better. But before we get into the barbecue sauce, I want to just talk to Dick a little bit about how he became a blueberry farmer. And uh, so, Dick... Tell us a little bit about your story and, and how you ended up owning a blueberry farm. Well, in 1980, um, we, my father and my brother were looking at our land, and we wanted to justify every acre of land that we had, whether it be timber, whether it be open cropland, whether it be whatever woodlands or wetlands or whatever we needed to do. We had about, about 20 acres that we didn't have anything on, and we wanted to put something on it, and we decided to get a fruit. And, and my brother and I had grown up with peaches, and we really didn't want to do peaches, so we, we I chose blueberries, and we went with that. And the main reason we got into to blueberries, because I knew people's eating habits were going to change. Even in 1980, I knew that we were going to be going toward more fruit and vegetables, and for two different reasons. One, because we had going to have less and less farmland, to work with and we needed to be more and more efficient with the land that we have access to and then i thought people's eating habits were going to change and i thought the the poor people would want to eat vegetables and fruit because the cost was so much uh cheaper and i thought the uh, richer folks would eat fruit and vegetables just because of the nutritional value and i think that has kind of come to fruition that i think no matter where you are on the uh demographics as far as income goes i think you kind of fit in because everybody either you can either change your eating habits or the doctor will tell you to change your eating habits uh, now and so everybody's changing their eating habits to just to be healthier and everybody's exercising more and i knew that was coming about in 1980 a man didn't eat a salad if he did he ate it over in the corner because that was kind of sissy and we always had to have our meat now it's not uncommon for us to go two or three days with uh, just vegetables and fruit and uh, it's more efficient for our body and it's also more efficient to be whatever gr uh, land that you're growing on you need to be efficient with it because it takes an acre and a half to grow a cow whereas they give me an acre and a half and i'll feed five families for a year and give you enough diversity whether it be beans or tomatoes any kind of fruit and vegetable and and we can take care you know of our of our, our needs so that's kind of how i got into it and um and, and I love it. I mean, I've never liked blueberries from day one. I just love what I'm doing. And there's a difference between like and love. Yeah, and many people don't know that Georgia is quite the blueberry state. Uh, everyone thinks of it as pecans and peanuts and peaches, but the three Ps, I guess. Um, but actually, blueberries are a huge part of the economy down there in the farm. And the blueberries that come out of Georgia are phenomenal. So... Tell me a little bit well, about. Oh, I go ahead. A lot of, yeah, I, the, the thing is that, that that Georgia has an advantage on uh, other states, and maybe the south, southeastern states are maybe fit that category. Is that we have the heat and the the uh, dry periods, and so we have to have a variety that can tolerate heat and dry. Or and and, and the the plant goes through a little bit of stress, and by doing that, you having increased your fructose and your sucrose and your blueberries and they are sweeter and if you tell you can taste the difference between a northern blueberry and a southern blueberry uh, the rabbit eye variety in particularly because it is higher in fructose and is a little bit sweeter another thing that has helped us as far as production goes in the state of georgia is that our growing season starts around the end of april and goes to like uh, in the mountains 
starting at the southern part of Georgia, starts at the end of April and in uh, May, and then it goes all the way through August and maybe a little bit in September. But that's a long, long growing season as opposed to our competition in other states are down to two months. And just by having the different varieties in our, in our research, we've really, really been able to focus on more rabbit eye varieties and also the southern highbush, which is adapted to the south. And it can handle the heat and the dry and uh, and everything that the south has to offer. But anyway, when you have a longer growing season, it's hard, hard to compete. When you've only got two months to grow, we've got five months. That makes a big, big difference. And I was when I started in blueberries in 1980, we weren't even in the top ten. And Georgia at that time, or the South in particular, 98% of the the uh, market hadn't even been tapped. Now you can look at that as negative or positive, but I looked at it as positive. And I kept thinking, well, 98%. That's 98% of the people that once they get exposed to it may very well change, and then we have a really open market, which is really pretty much has transpired since then. And then uh, we have watched us get into the top ten, which I was really excited about. Then when we got in the top top five, then I got then you start really getting focused on, and then top three, and then when you become number one in the nation, boy, we have seen a transition that's just been phenomenal, and uh, it's really kind of neat. Uh, now, when I when I was the youngest guy in the meeting. Uh, 40, almost 40 years ago. Now I'm one of the older guys. And you really kind of looked up to the older guys as they were telling you, this is what you need to be doing. And most people that are in competition wouldn't tell you their secrets. But farming is a little bit different, I think, because the farmers that were older than I were, were really gave me access. I had their personal phone numbers. Um, and even back before we had cell phones, we had these um, communicators that bounced off towers and we could hit their number and I could be instantly be instantly be talking to them within 30 seconds and asking them about a problem, and I'm gone. And they hung up, and they're you know we've got the information that I need, and I'm using it. So, you know, we've got just a lot of variables that were really positive and upbeat. And uh, I'm the oldest organic blueberry farmer in the southeast, and the third oldest in the United States. And it's not, it, I you know when. You're sitting in a classroom, and if you'll pay attention, you'll learn something. And teachers do know more than we do. And sometimes some people don't figure that out until after they graduate from college. But anyway, the teachers that were telling me, they kept saying that we have organic matter, will hold nutrients and hold water. Uh, and that just made totally great sense to me. And that's what I've been able to do, you know, from day one is I kept adding organic matter. The city of Waynesboro, where I live, takes their leaves grass clippings and um, limbs out to my farm and uh and we use that and i don't know if you've ever taken a soil sample from one of those uh when they've been decayed and melted and kind of melted down a little bit but they're very high in phosphorus and potassium they're very low in minor elements but uh they're still a good fertilizer and it's a natural fertilizer and if you let them go through a heat they'll kill the wheat seeds but the phosphorus and potassium is still there so basically i I get free fertilizer. It's gold to me, and, and uh, we've been using that since 1995, and I really haven't had to fertilize too much. In fact, my when I took my leaf sample and my soil sample this past year, I had already exceeded the phosphorus and potassium, and we're going to skip a year. All I have to do is put nitrogen because nitrogen is something that needs to be replenished quite a bit. And so um, what? So did you say you had two types of blueberries you grow, or is there more than, than two? Well, there's like four different kinds. I don't know of any other kind, but there's a uh, a low bush which is grown in Canada and Maine, and then there's the uh, the high bush. There's a northern variety and there's a southern variety. Uh, the northern variety requires more hot hours, which I really don't understand. But I didn't know that till like ten years ago. I was talking to a grower that was in Michigan. And I said, you don't have to worry about cold hours. And he said, no, I have to worry about hot hours because blueberries or any fruit needs to have a certain period of time of work and they need a certain uh, amount of time of rest. So we in the south are worried about cold hours because we want our plants to rest, whereas the people in the north have a different problem and they want their plants to work. And you have to have so many hours to do that. And so their varieties are quite different from mine. Like my varieties require uh, 1,800 to 1,200 cold hours and theirs require probably 1800 to over 2000 um uh, cold hours which they get it naturally but then they need hot hours and we don't have to worry about that and then they know the numbers better 
for hot hours. But the bottom line is this, is that, that we have a southern variety, a northern variety, and then we have a rabbit eye variety of blueberries, which is what I have. They're a little bit bigger than the uh, southern and, and uh, uh, northern highbush variety, and they're also a little bit sweeter, which I have said previously that they're – and I think – I don't have any research on this, but I really think because of the stress is associated with the heat and with the uh, lack of water sometimes that it stresses the plant and it raises the uh, sugar level – and I may be wrong, but it is, we know this, that it is higher in fructose and sucrose. So basically you've got four varieties of blueberries that we can choose from. And so, okay, so you started the business and now you're a blueberry farmer and organics. So was it, was it hard for people to accept organics at first? Was there a market for it right away? I mean, cause, and you obviously started <laughs> off that way and concentrated that way. So what, did it take a while for it to catch on because you were such a pioneer in inorganics uh it probably you know i don't know if this makes sense or not but sometimes when you're so far ahead of the curve that you see the future you're 20 years ahead of everybody else people really don't understand exactly what you're doing it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to them because it's not, it hasn't happened yet uh whereas people weren't um i mean when i in 1980 ddt uh was still on the market and uh and that was a very dangerous chemical which we have seen and the fruition came from that, that nobody would dare use DDT even now. And we were starting to take a few chemicals off the market at that time, not like it has accelerated now where more and more chemicals have been taken off the market. But when something makes sense, like raising your organic matter, it holds nutrients and holds uh, water. That's the concept that I went with first because that just made total sense to me when i first started the organic matter in my soil was a half a percent now it's 5.6 to give you some kind of idea of what organic is when i say i have one percent organic matter one percent organic matter and it's, i tell you what justin this still blows my mind when i tell people this but just can you imagine this humongous number but twenty thousand pounds equals one percent per acre of organic matter so when I tell you 5.6, you are in your mind, you're multiplying 5.6 times 20,000. And see, so you're already up to over 100,000 right there, pounds of organic matter, and I'm at 5.6. And you look and compare to Kentucky, Illinois, and Iowa that have black dirt, and we would be excited about brown dirt, and their organic matter is 30%. So I'm not even close to the organic matter that I would really like to be, but it is taking in almost 30 years just to get to 5.6 because then you know we have more uh we don't have the freeze and hold on to organic matter and our organic matter can continue to slip through the soil and that's the reason we have to keep raising organic matter so that's kind of where i came from and when i talk to farmers and consumers you know that always made sense to me and i think i could just like i explained it to you it makes sense to you right now whether i was organic or not because Wait a minute. I need to raise my organic matter. We had a pecan grower that I grew up with in Waynesboro, and he had his heat. When, once the season's over with, he would put all his, uh, uh, his pecans, his limbs, his leaves, all the trash that came when he was grading his pecans out, and then he would just sling it out in the field, and you could see an S wherever he slung it out in the field. So he said, hey, your organic matter makes plenty of sense to me. I don't need to be told twice. So he understood exactly in the trail that I was going into. So if you look at organic matter in its infancy, and now we're not having to worry about it too much. But see, I was putting organic matter on my farm, but I still had to deal with the weed seeds. Whereas now we go let it go through a heat and the weed seeds will take care of itself. So when I told people I was raising organic matter, one, they probably didn't exactly understand what I was doing because I was so far ahead of the curve. But as it came on, it made sense. And then all of a sudden you say pioneer, and pioneer is a great word because now all of a sudden now when I give talk, I'm so still so far ahead of the curve in organic matter. It's still higher than everybody else. Now they want to get their organic matter up, and now the leaves, limbs, and grass clippings that are being taken out to our city landfill are not no longer going there, but they're going to my farm. And they we delivered some this morning, and I delivered some yesterday because it is so high in phosphorus and potassium. And it doesn't have the nitrogen, which I'm repeating myself, but it's so high in just the basic nutrients, what you need to put on any plant. 
And all we need to do is take a soil sample, find out what you're growing, and then we show you the fertilizer that's there, and then you can adapt whatever you need, whether it be ounces or pounds, you adjust it to whatever your plan is uh, in your county age, you can do that. And they can tell you exactly what needs to be done based on what you have, your soil analysis that you did on the uh, organic matter. And then they can kind of tell you what you do as a, as a uh, proportionately. But the thing that's neat is the, the nutrients are so high, but yet you're adding organic matter at the same time. And as it breaks down, it's not absolutely perfect organic matter. It still has little sticks and little pieces of wood in it, but still they break down and still are great nutrients for the plant. So, you know, you are ahead of the curve, but now all of a sudden 20 years later, people go, or 30 years later going, wait a minute, what did you do again? Can you explain that? Because it works. Yeah, and it's totally, you're, you were such a first mover, you have a huge advantage now. And I think that's so important just as a business person. And, you know, where first mover does matter when it comes to things like that. And the fact that you've gotten that percentage increase over 30 years, I still think is amazing because um, getting the soil to recover and to become nutritious in the way that that you have, I think is so important. And I wish more people would do that across the country, um, honestly, is start, you know, well, we will better. I think, yeah, I, I think we will. You know, the thing is, if it makes sense, you don't have to sit there and browbeat somebody. Wait a minute, this is what it does, uh, and it's free. Uh, do I need to say anything else? And most people pick up on that. They go, hey, that makes sense to me. So it's just a matter of time. That's amazing. So, so did you call them organic blueberries from the very beginning? No. At, the, at that time, organic was really such a word that was in its infancy so much that yeah. people didn't know exactly what that was. Then all of a sudden, you know, they, they would, they, it's known as the organic uh, farm. And now the people that go into organic uh, uh, come to me and ask me, what does it take to build up the soil? And I, I can show them exactly what I'm doing because now your machinery that you have adapted to uh, propagating plants or whether it be putting out the fertilizer or whatever. Uh, you have adapted to to what you're doing, and I uh, you can grow plants closer together because they they are um, because now you've got higher nutrients. The plant has access to higher nutrients, and you can grow plants closer together, and you can get more of a production. And um, so you know, it's just to me, it's just always made sense. And a lot of times, if you make sense and not have to justify what you're doing just tell them this is what you're doing and this is what the outcome is i mean people can kind of read between the lines they can figure things out and i think that's kind of what i've kind of looked at it at that's incredible that you you did it so early i mean i uh i know i actually spent some time on organic farm and sold organic produce on the side of the road like late 90s as a job to help myself get into college and save money and hired employees and all that and one of the first businesses i did but I mean, even then trying to explain someone, so that was roughly 18 years after you started your farm, trying to even then explain people organic and whole foods were just starting to pop up everywhere there, but it was still trying to explain organic to everyone. I just remember like it was, it was hard. It was hard for people to understand why the produce would cost a little more or what the difference was or why it was important uh, even then. So I'm just, I'm blown away by you know, how early you started and then having to get people to buy your blueberries. Um, and I assume they had to cost more because you weren't using all the, the uh, artificial pesticides and, and fertilizers. But I mean, so how did you get people to buy it even then just to, just purely buy it was a better product, um, that it tasted better? And I mean, I imagine that that's the way it had to go, but I'm not sure. Uh, when I first started... I really didn't uh, market it as organic. Um, I uh, just it, it's it was the same cost as other as conventional uh, blueberries. Uh, I really didn't put a tag on it, even though it was. Um, and then, and then about 1995, I was selling about half conventional and half organic. And it was people would look at me going, "No, wait a minute! You got the same blueberries here from the same farm. Why are they conventional? I just didn't sell enough of the organic." Uh, but it was coming. And then all of a sudden in, in the uh, early, after the 90s, 99 and 2000, then it started to switch. And then I, since 1992, I mean, excuse me, 2002, I have been able to sell the whole crop as organic. 
And, uh, you know, all of a sudden when cancer is a negative word, but as soon as you get that, all of a sudden people go, I need to get away from chemicals. Well, if, if you need to get away from chemicals after you get cancer, what about before? And so now they're worried about, they're concerned about their children. Um, and, and, and so it's an easier sell now because, um, uh, because of the less, of less chemicals. I don't know. Some people have done research on it and said it's more nutrient, uh, has more nutrients in it, but I can't, I don't see how that would just by neglecting something. But I think it, if everything was equal, um, it does, it is more label and labor intensive. And that's probably what, you know, moves up the cost more than anything else. We have to, our herbicide is a hoe and a shovel sometimes as opposed to a spray. And uh, killing bugs is something that, um, I tell you, I was in a meeting one time and everybody was being devastated by an orange-looking spider. And I was I raised my hand. I said, I don't have this. I say, I have that orange spider on my farm, but it's not doing any damage. And they said, do you have fire ants? And I have never heard anything positive about fire ants. No, the fire ants eat the larva of this uh, spider. And uh, I, I was just, God, I mean, I've never been excited <laughs> about fire ants, and I'm still not excited a whole lot about them. But I don't, but see, I wasn't getting rid of them by spraying an insecticide. So they're pretty prolific out there. So they were eating the larva of this, uh, of, of this, uh, this red spider or orange spider and eliminating the uh, spider the natural way. And where they're spraying everywhere else, and I didn't because I've never sprayed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm getting rid of it the natural way. And they kept saying, "Well, can we get some of your fire ants?" I said, "There's really no need to come and get fire ants from me if you're going to continue to spray because all you do is kill the fire ants, and you, you know, you're you're breaking up the cycle." So I've never broken the cycle, and I bet you there are insects on my farm that live. But once they leave the farm, then they will be eliminated. But they don't know that. But they're alive and well on my farm because I'm not spraying. Anything. And that's incredible, actually. And I, I just, and I love that we talked about it because I think the audience, um, just having an understanding of that, what the organic farming piece is actually the the part of it that I love. It's not only what we talked about, um, which I love also, is is putting organic um, substance into the soil and matter. It's um, that you're letting nature sort of correct itself and take its own path and and do things the way it needs to and because of it their success and less devastation the products were you're not having to correct by over correcting something else and and then you're constantly playing this game of trying to fix everything and uh and put everything back into balance and and really nature for the most part does that for us um at least in food and in my experience if you just you know, we sort of just leave it alone. It'll it'll correct itself, and it'll fig- nature will figure out a way. And so, I I do like that a lot that we talked about it. So, I mean, obviously, your blueberries, I mean, they're awesome. Uh, the blueberries you had in your blueberry barbecue sauce, you could taste, you know, how flavorful they were, and and the sugar and stuff, and and things like that. But I want to get into the barbecue sauce, but what other pro do you produce other products with your blueberries or you mostly sell them wholesale or do you do juices and things like that? Well, I'm just we curious. sell, I, you know, I, I look at my sales, I think it's about half and half. Um, I probably sell 40 to 50% fresh, 40, 40% frozen. And then the other 10% go in the products. I do chocolate blueberries. I have a Georgia bar that has all the ingredients from the state of Georgia, pecans, uh, uh, oats, uh, honey, blueberries, peanuts, um, and uh, soybean. I use a soybean oil called lecithin, which is almost like a honey product, and it's kind of a cohesive. And then I have uh, jams, jellies, and syrups, and um, you know, I have like 20-something products, and five of them have won the uh, flavor of Georgia. I've won the flavor of georgia more than anybody else in the state of georgia uh i've won it five times but i've also lost eight times it's been doing it's been going on for 13 years people go well you've won a lot yeah i know how to lose too because we enjoy the flavor of georgia's kind of helped me some products don't make it well i mean i don't i don't get upset it just saves you a lot of money yeah you're disappointed because you didn't win but overall you're kind of glad because the judges are telling you this product won't really kind of get off the ground and get going and it just saves you a lot of time and heartache and some products of uh, i still have and 
but I just don't put them on a grand scale, not like this blueberry barbecue sauce. I think it has more potential because we're in a barbecue belt, uh, so to speak. And I think we all will be barbecuing, you know, eventually this summer um, outside. And, you know, this product kind of fits that. But, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I, it's, the bottom line is that I wanted every berry to be sold. I really have a real problem with seeing a berry laying on the ground, and it happens. But I just kind of think to myself, I'm inefficient. You're given so much acreage. What are you doing with that acreage? Now that you're growing it, what are you doing as far as marketing goes? And it's like we had a long discussion this summer, I mean, excuse me, in January at a, at a blueberry meeting, and the guy was going, this is what you need to do if your product is still on the shelf in three weeks. And I was sitting there going, thinking, well, this is what we need to do, blah, blah, blah. And then I was going, wait a minute. If my product has not sold in three weeks, then I'm not doing a very good job of marketing. And that's the way I kind of look at it. If it's not sold and in a store visibly shown to the public as they come and look at different things to buy, within three to five days, I'm inefficient. And that's just kind of way I look at it. I don't want to do anything to preserve my product. I want to get it in somebody's mouth, and then they can do whatever they want to with it from that point forward and if you don't have them have access to it then you need to change you know the way you do business so i'm not even worried about something like that now temperature is very important you want to keep your blueberries below 40 degrees because they'll last uh you know at 40 degrees they'll last a good two weeks and that has happened to me a few times but it's because somebody uh the store i was dealing with had a two for one something with another product I like strawberries, I forgot exactly grapes or whatever, and then the blueberries are kind of pushed to the side. But once the the uh, promo was over with, then yeah, they were right back at blueberries, and there I was ready to go. But that's that doesn't happen very often, and you kind of plan those things in April as opposed to wait until June and July when my product hits the market, and you won't do that ahead of time. And so, um, so do you do all the processing and in, in the bars and the refrigeration of your blueberries yourself on the farm, or do you use third parties? I try to use third parties. One because I think that's a little bit of common sense. You want to be inspected by a third, even a more of a third or fourth party, somebody that's already doing it. We call it uh, co-packing, and that's what we do. We co-pack, and uh, and then they are inspected by their own inspectors. This day and time, you just don't want to take a chance with sanitary problems or anything. So I get inspected on a fresh blueberry situation as opposed to the doing the products, and I do those other places. I have probably probably between five and eight different processes that process my product, and so they meet. They have all their own standards. One, most of them are in Georgia. Uh, I'm trying to think. I think all of them are in Georgia. I can't think. Of, I used to have some in North Carolina. But anyway, I do have a third party that's actually doing the product and they inspect it. And then that way, when I, you have different, you have so many requirements that you have to meet. And I just don't want to take a chance, not when you're dealing with the public, especially with my name being on the product. And I live in the United States. That happens a lot of times when people are outside the United States. They have a problem, but they can change their name and, and keep going. Well, my name means something to me. And not only that, I'm also an American and I do appreciate you know, the testing standards and the qualifications that we have to, the hoops we have to jump through. And you, they're there for a reason because you don't want to mess up. So I kind of like having a third party doing my product. Yeah, I am. Um, well, and I say this not because we do co-packaging or Deborah and I are involved in it, but because the regulations are so difficult. Like I would never want to run the farm because you have your own set of things that you have to do and worry about the soil and so I'm not going to go owning my own farm as a, you know, being involved in co-packing. So I totally understand what you're saying, not to mention that the the laws are, are moving so quickly and we're really getting up to speed in, Amer- in the United States on food codes and, and where they should be. I know everyone's a little bit shocked because we just had the Food Service Modernization Act and um, and it's been pretty pretty hard on people, but... It's uh, it's really what's best for food, and I think that the people that are getting it right and having their facilities inspected and and really holding the level above even just that new act, it's pretty incredible. And we're seeing great things with food, and it's also allowing us to have fresher food, um, healthier food, local foods becoming back into the market because 
you know, less, you know, less preservatives, less things. So it's all coming together in a perfect way, which is why I really love what you're doing. I think that, you know, to take it back to part of what you said is that we're seeing people start to, to go back to local foods and healthier foods and fresher fruit and vegetables. And it's so important, not, not only for our health, but just so we help the economies in our local uh, states and cities and towns because, you know, buying something from from Mexico, and that's not saying, you know, whatever we can argue about it, price or whatever, but the, the thing is, is that buying local helps out the people in your community. In economics, you know, money needs to turn. It needs to go from person to person to person to really generate wealth and and pick up you know lower classes uh, that don't have the same economic benefit as a middle class or an upper class so i really love what you're doing because i think it's so important you know putting the nutrients back in the soil growing blueberries in georgia using georgia co-packers all of that is is really an amazing thing and i love blueberries i love the the benefits of them so i'm a little bit of uh you know, always love them. It's one of the things I, I truly love. So your blueberry barbecue sauce is, is amazing. So let's talk about the barbecue sauce a little bit. How did you guys come up with the idea to do a blueberry barbecue sauce? Well, I think what was going through my mind was, again, what are you doing with the blueberries uh, as far as marketing them to the max? Uh, when the season's over with, um, I just see. I used to have berries that were just sitting in these uh, buckets and stuff, and packing. And I uh, that was back before people really took off on blueberries. And these are the berries that you graded out. And I just wanted a market for them. And then you start looking for other vehicles. You look for the jam and jellies and the preserves. But those really are nice products to have. But they really every Tom, Dick, and Harry has jams and jellies, preserves. So what your, your objective is is to come up with odd different products that people can use and you can still move your fruit. And a blueberry barbecue sauce is definitely an odd product. It also has a different color. People that are into culinary really want something that looks different. They want something that tastes different. And, um, and it's, they're constantly looking for something that's uh, making changes because you, you don't want to follow the crowd because that's not how you really are successful. You want to do something that's kind of dynamic and blueberry barbecue sauce in my opinion kind of fits that category but not only that sometimes you um you get a product and they are some other blueberry barbecue sauces on the market and i had tasted them but i will tell you justin i will be honest with you they just did not have anything that really attracted me and a lot of times when you're looking for something and you really are getting ready to give up you kind of throw in the towel and you you go, all right, let me just accept what the norm is, and then I'll just take that and just see what happens, whereas I just kept looking and looking, and then Mark said, let's try this, because he has a wing restaurant, and he has like 15 to 16 different kinds of sauce or barbecue sauces to put on his product, and um, and, and he was looking for a different avenue to, you know, something, a different vehicle to put his uh, wings, sauce to put on his wings. So the blueberry barbecue sauce was something we tried. Now, he did 12, maybe 15 different kinds of blueberry barbecue sauce, and I liked all 15 of them, but he did. And he kept messing around with the recipe and messing around. He didn't like the pulp being obvious. He didn't like uh, the taste of it. And uh, we kept trying stuff, and it, uh, you know, it's got to be appeasing, uh, appetizing. It's got to be something that the consumer can look at and go, because a lot of times you put something that may be extremely nutritious, but it looks ugly, and people go, well, I'll try it, but, I, I, you know, it's okay, but, you know, I'm just eating it because of the nutritional value or something along that nature, whereas opposed to this blueberry sauce, it looks appetizing, it looks good. Um, I think women are more discreet than men are, whereas they are more particular about what things look like, and it, well, how is it going to look on the table? and the color arrangements, and when you have something that's a little bit purple or blue, you know, it does give you something different to look at, and I think blueberries are, you know, they're a dark fruit as opposed to all the other fruits are light-colored, and this has a dark color to it, 
and it has a little bit of a story associated with it. And people want a story. They just want something a little different. And I think it just kind of fits that niche. It also keeps me from having, when I see a blueberry on the ground, I don't like that. But also when they come when it comes to grading your blueberries, uh, somebody that just has just started asked the question, what, how can I determine which blueberry to pull out? And I say, look, if you're in doubt, pull it because don't, uh, don't worry. And don't worry about it. Even if you put a perfectly good blueberry in, uh, you pull it and grade it out. Don't worry about it because I make more money off of selling the pr- blueberries in the product than I do on the fresh market. And then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and then your quality um, uh, limitations are, you know, are, uh, are, have worked itself out. And now all of a sudden they don't feel bad and they feel comfortable pulling a blueberry off. And, uh, and so your quality that goes on the market is a lot better product. And it's like somebody says, you know, that I said, you won't find a bad blueberry because of that. And people go, oh, well, that makes sense. So it's just, I don't know if that answers your question a whole lot, but it kind of gives you, I've got yeah. some flexibility to work with. No, and uh, it does completely answer my question. And the other part that I love that you mentioned, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, and it's an educational thing, because I don't think anyone who goes to the grocery store that's not in farming and even in food, especially what I've seen in Georgia um, through what um, we're trying to do there is that they're actually people think food waste is food that goes bad in the logistics system. But there's often food you guys as farmers um, have to just plow under or throw on the ground or let rot because it doesn't meet a, a spec. It doesn't meet you know, whatever that daily grocery store grind is, um, to, to pull it through. And so people ends up just going bad or being, you know, hauled off for animals or whatever. And so it's perfectly edible. Most of it, you know, I don't think there's much that is bad when it comes to fruits and vegetables that come off it. Sometimes it's just too big. Sometimes it's too small. Sometimes it doesn't meet the standard. And it's just crazy because, the grocery stores want it to look a certain way, but just because it's too big doesn't mean it's not edible. And it really just blows my mind how much food we waste because of it. Uh, perfectly good produce. Yeah. You know, I saw a cucumber that was enormous. You know, if I would have known, like, all for years that cucumbers were going that big, I would prefer them that big processing them versus the small ones. Because, you know, I'm getting more yield out of them. I'm getting more meat versus skin. But... It's an amazing thing where we've kind of standardized fruit into a certain size, into a certain weight to sell at the grocery store, uh, but there's actually diversity in shapes and sizes and flavors. And like you said, there's different grades. It's figuring out, and I love what you're doing, it's taking each one of those grades or each one of those options and making sure that you're trying to use 100% of it and not waste it. So I think that's... Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so what are some well, I'll of... tell you this. You know this, but, you know, and no matter if it's a club or a church or a community, um, and I use this analysis, and I'm not trying to be funny, even though it's kind of a funny comment, but, you know, it's the fat people, the ugly people, the skinny people, they're the ones that get the job done. And that's what I compare to my farm. You know, we grade out the fat ones, the juicy ones. I get they're more valuable because they get the job done. The beautiful people, I don't know what they're worried about, but they don't get the job done sometimes. It's the, you know, it's the people who think, you know, sit there and go, what am I worth? Well, to me, you're worth a million dollars, okay? Yep. And, um, and, I, and I, I, you're, you're a lot more valuable to me on the farm uh, because I'm using you. And, uh, and that's the way it is that most in, uh, things in life. And I, when I give a talk, I try to use that comparison. Everybody goes, yeah, you're right. So if you're sitting in the audience going, I'm of no use to anybody, I'm this or that, no, you are valuable. I guarantee you've got resources that we've never thought about. And if you give everybody a chance to participate, then um, th- then you'll get you'll learn more and, and move faster in life. In my opinion, yeah, I agree with that one hundred percent. And I think that everyone has purpose and and is useful. And no matter what, and it's a it's actually amazing. And when you really give people a chance to grow and thrive, um, and they're willing to to take that chance or take that opportunity. Uh, beautiful things happen and sometimes it just takes a little while to get there but it is it's amazing and I love the comparison to the blueberries Uh, you know that's something I really want to emphasize is that 
you know, no matter what the blueberry is or how it looks or whatever, you're trying to use 100% of it. And it's the same thing as humans. You know, I don't, we don't care as long as you're, uh, you're willing to work and you want to learn and you want to grow. I think it's an amazing thing. And, uh, there's plenty of people out there that are willing to do that. And sometimes you don't even know your talent or what you're worth, but you're worth a lot. So, yeah, I love that. And so well, if you I, learn that early in life too, that everybody has something to contribute, then, uh, you know, a lot of times we stereotype people are already, uh, look at somebody and go, well, they're not, they're not very smart or they're this, that, and the other. No, give them a chance. Let them talk. You'll learn something more from them than probably people you think are geniuses or whatever because everybody's got a story and everybody's got something to contribute. Most of the time, people have got something they thought through that have a couple of questions. Sometimes you can steer them in the right direction and both of you are learning from that circumstance. I agree with that 100%. It's actually this podcast is part of it for me. I've learned more on this podcast probably than four years of my undergraduate education because people just have so much knowledge. And even this episode alone in the soil and, you know, it didn't even dawn on me that you could actually use grass clippings and leaves to put into the soil to you know, help the organic matter, you know, when people throw away their leaves and their grass clippings into the trash companies all day long and they fill them with bags and put them out in, you know, in the suburbs and, and, but yet really that is good organic matter that could be used on farms, you know, so that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. Um, and I do want to talk about something else. And so I noticed, um, you're you're surrounded by women on the farm. You have you have I believe four daughters, um, but I'm not four daughters. That's right. And uh, so the family dynamic of running a farm and also being the only male in a household. I mean, how is all of that for you on a, just a deeper level? Because I know farm requires a lot of work. Are all your daughters involved in and all of that? And and how does you know sort of all that work? Well, you know, it's kind of funny that they kind of do their own thing. Uh, I have one daughter that does the bees and pollination. She gets uh, she gets to get stung, and but she enjoys working with the bees and working with the honey and doing everything. Um, and then each girl has kind of chosen their own kind of avenue that they want to work with. And it's like they told they told me when they were growing up. They said, "Daddy, we have never been embarrassed about what you have done." growing blueberries because everybody has so many questions about it and it starts a whole new avenue and they get to tell them their story from their perspective growing up on the farm and you know as the little girls were little um and need to be babysat or whatever they stayed in their little pen and they didn't complain you know and then as soon as they could get up and start grading berries they were upgrading and um it's funny when we get into this cold period of time like we do in March every year when it can drop down below 28 degrees, which can be pretty devastating to your farm and eliminate your crop. Uh, they're always calling, Daddy, what was the temperature last night? Text me as soon as you can. So, you know, so they're very concerned about the future of it. And they know that everybody uh, is eating more and more vegetables and fruits because that's what they do. And I don't know, it's been, it, from their perspective, it's kind of exciting to listen to them give their story and because when you love something, uh, you, it kind of it kind of throughout. You know, people kind of pick up on that. They see what you're doing. They get excited about it. And um, I don't know if you love something, you see something that other people don't see. Uh, liking something is one thing. It's just like I like your spouse, but you love her, and you put up with a lot of things that normally uh, I wouldn't, you know, put up with. But that's the reason you're together, and that's the reason y'all stayed together for so long. You put it with the incursincrasies that, you know, each one of us has, but that's the difference between love and like. And the same thing when I walk out into the blueberry farm, I see things that need to be done. I see bugs nobody else sees. I see, you know, berries doing this. I see pollination going from here. And the girls have done that exact same thing. Some of them like driving tractors. Some of them don't. Some of them like fertilizing. You know, the other ones uh, like marketing and getting out and talking to people. I have two girls. They're probably as bubbly as I am about excited about blueberries, and they're, you know, they make people feel comfortable because um, they're enjoying what they do. And it's almost it's perfect because what you said is you sort of have let them go their own path, and it's exactly what you're doing on the organic farm. Also, you know, every, nature's just letting it lead its way, and with them, they're not being forced into anything. They're just sort of, 
you know, doing it on their own. And I do have a question just because we have honey on the episode a lot. Does is the honey so the bees actually pollinate the blueberries? Is that does the honey taste different because of that? Is there a blueberry honey? I haven't seen anyone do it yet. I'm just curious. And do you do you cultivate the you honey? You know, the funny the funny thing well the funny thing is about honey, I've compared it to wine. You know, some people that are wine connoisseurs can tell you where the wine came from, whether it was from Europe, whether it was from North Carolina or California. And I'll tell you something that's odd. I have always kind of felt that way about honey. Some people can taste it and say, this is wildflower, this is sour, uh, sour wood, this is um, um, Tupelo. And I'm amazed. Sometimes I really can't tell the difference. But the people who are in honey, it would be the same thing with you. If you were tasting different honey all day long, and I mean multiple kinds, it's kind of like you taste it and you could pick up on it. And then I was talking to a guy this past summer. He said, I can almost tell you the ratio of pollen that is you say it's a wild wood or sour wood, I can tell you if it's 80% or 50%. And to give you the regulations on honey, you can't call it, if you call it sour wood, it has to be, the pollen has to be 51% or over 50% of whatever you call it, or you cannot call it that. So in other words, if you're going to call it Tupelo, it's got to be 51%. Those are the regulations that are associated with, um, with honey. And to me, I, you know, when you talk to somebody that's a connoisseur of honey, they can sit there and tell you where it comes from. They can tell you the pollen. Now, those people are extremely interesting, and it's the same thing with the wine connoisseurs. When they're tasting wine, they can tell you where it comes from. They can tell you um, maybe how old the plant is. I mean, they are so precise. I don't understand that kind of competition, but they are fascinating to talk to because they can, you can learn so much from them. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's really just mind-boggling. And we have had honey people on the episode, but um, it's just, I was just curious just because you had mentioned it. So as we start to, you know, wrap things up, you know, we talked a lot about, I love your positivity. I actually love your energy as an entrepreneur and really it reflects in that you were a pioneer and, and so excited about it and what you've done over the last 30 years, just with, um, or 30 plus years, almost 40 years if you started in 1980 but so what what are your plans i mean do you just keep growing the the blueberry farm or are your daughters looking at taking over the farm i mean how does your future look and or do you just sort of let that lead its way as well well it's it's uh to me i would like to expand up to 100 acres i've got four girls so i like i like for each one of them to have 25 acres and that's a way of bringing them you know and keeping them on the farm and Keeping them, keeping them active, and then they can work together. I think they work together extremely well. You know, they're sisters, but they're also friends. And a lot of when each one of them are going through some stress or something like that, they are very work. You know, work with each other and break up with boyfriends or you know or whatever they do. You know, funny things that they do. Um, and that's kind of what I want to do is expand. We also are looking at a variety of blueberry that's bigger. It's called a Titan and a Cure variety will be the cross pollinator and it is a, a blueberry that's the size of a quarter and uh because of the size of it it's going to be um uh, i think it's going to be a kind of a novelty in the stores people will buy it first and we were kind of worried about seeing the size of it may very well affect um the taste of it but i don't see a variation in the taste at all what I see is is that uh, it's just going to be a novelty, and we're going to put that bigger variety on the farm. That's going to be my next thing, and I'll play that one out. Uh, also, don't have earlier varieties, but the competition for me in the early part is tough, whereas people that can't compete with, with me at the end. So I'm really looking at varieties that come off at the end. It may carry me into August, maybe September, but I doubt it. But they may carry me into August when most of us are out of, I say, the southern part of Georgia is out of business probably uh, July the 4th. And so I'm still active after July the 4th. And I would love to have something to carry me into August a little bit. Oh, that's amazing. I, I love that. And the increasing and, and the more blueberries, the better, in my opinion. And there's just so many avenues coming out for them. Um, I recently tried blueberry juice and I was like, it blew me away how amazing it was and nutritious it was. And 
and people that are using all the remains in the skins to grind down and use for um, medicinal purposes or um, you know health uh, health purposes and things like that. So I mean, blueberries, in my opinion, are just they're so such a huge future for them, uh, especially as oh consumers. yeah, and I have a yeah I have a blueberry powder too, and I think that's where we're heading. I mean, that is about twenty years again; it's ahead of its time. But, again, you're using the blueberry that nobody really wants, but the nutrition is still there. The nutrients did not just dissolve or go away. They're still there, and people want the, um, they want the nutrients in there. The powder doesn't have a taste to it, but this next generation really doesn't want anything. They want it with tart, and it has an unusual I mean, uh, taste because if it tastes good, the first question they ask you, what's in it to make it, make it taste good? And if you say sugar, they go, I don't want sugar. You know, I want something else. Uh, I, I don't want it in there. And they don't want water. Why should you pay for water? And why should you pay for sugar? They don't want it. So the juice and the powder, really, to me, they, that has a tremendous future with the blueberry industry. Yeah, I love that. Um, the I just And then, again, it's going back to nothing's wasted. Every part of the blueberry is used. We get every blueberry off the farm. And so there's just this whole complete cycle where everything's used and nothing's wasted. And it's the way it should be. We shouldn't be wasting food. We should be making sure we use every part. And one of the things that I loved about the blueberry juice and the powder is the health benefits. But, I mean, they can replace the traditional vitamins that aren't actually natural, you know. And you have natural blueberry powder. And you have, you know, natural blueberry juice instead of sodas or or sports drinks or whatever that adds sugar to them, they're naturally that way. So the sugar that's in there is naturally blueberry juice, which I think is such an amazing thing. It's just incredible. I, I love that. Um, so my next question for you is what have been, you know, if you could name, you know, two or three things, what are the, some of the biggest lessons you've learned over the last 30 plus years in being in the blueberry business as a business person? Well, I think one of the things I do look at is the consumer. Um, you know, when I go into a grocery store and they have reduced items that they're getting rid of, that's one of the first things I look at is what's coming out and why. Why, You know, if you're trying to sell uh, a blueberry jelly and you look in the, in the cart and there's a bunch of jelly and jam and stuff that's being handed out, then that tells me a lot about the consumer right there. I also ask the each grocery store that I go into, I said, tell me your number one item and your item that's it's the, at the bottom and which item is at the top. That tells me a lot about the grocery store, too, and it lets me know that um, a lot of times they'll tell me honey is a, is a very good ingredient. Well, I need to uh, – that makes sense to me. It also tells you the demographics of where you are. If uh, the consumer is buying a lot of this, you can tell about the uh, – if that's the, you know the ethnics, uh, ethics, not eth, you know the different types of people. Yeah. Or like if you're selling a lot of um, uh, cayenne pepper, then that's going to tell you a little bit about the uh, surrounding area. And uh, or if they're selling a lot of this, that, and other, that tells you a little bit about the consumer. And I like I like knowing the consumer, and also like businesses, the restaurants that are going out of business, why they're going out of business, and you can learn some from the negative as well as the positive. And those are things that I've learned from. Two, uh, our eating habits are drastically changing. Just like in 1980, we started moving into more vegetables and fruit. But I think you're going to see us become more and more efficient, that the farmer has to be uh, do a better job of like, like seeing fruit and vegetables on the ground. Why aren't the big cucumber, like you were saying, why isn't that being used? It can be used in a salad, chewed up and put into something. Somebody's not doing their marketing right there as far as I'm concerned. Or you're either producing too much or, you know, you're not utilizing your land. Maybe if you see, I see tomatoes on the ground, why not produce less from tomatoes and grow something else that you can, you know, you can use. So those are two things. And I do think the third thing is, is that chemicals, um, I think we're going to see less and less chemicals. And I remember sitting in class in 1976 and they were saying they were taking ddt off the market and i was thinking to myself what gives anybody the right to take any chemical off the market but you see the devastating things that ddt has done 
And now we're seeing that chemicals do this and do that. So we're going to see fewer and fewer chemicals. But let's face it, this is the United States. We're very, have, you know, we got the initiative to go away. We've got a problem, fix it. And now we've gotten chemicals now that are uh, basically you could almost drink. I mean, you wouldn't because of the concentration, but there's nothing wrong with them. We're using vinegar more. We're going to use uh, maybe alcohol or uh, something that's a natural pesticide that pests have a hard time dealing with, but it doesn't mess up the environment. If you spill vinegar everywhere, you haven't done anything. Uh, and you may have fed some insects, so to speak. But, um, you know, just we're getting more creative and we're being forced to make changes. But we just adapt. And this is the country that can do that a lot, lot better than some of the other, other countries. And uh, we're given a problem, deal with it. You know, we're in the big boy club now and we have a problem now well how are you gonna figure it out and do it legally and the best way to do it and it's nutritious and it's also not harmful to the environment and it's also not harmful to the consumer i think uh, i think you're 100 percent right i think there's instead of looking at it as something bad's happening to you it's there's ways around it and and legal ways around it and those disadvantages become the lessons we learn that become our advantages in the long run as entrepreneurs or as business people. Like we should be thanking people when those things happen because they force us to maneuver and they force us to grow. And if you're not willing to, you're not going to grow, but you're right. How do we take what's out there? Or if we're wasting something, we need to, to pivot and find a market there. Or if stuff's not being marketed and thrown away there's got to be other markets for it there's got to be a way that we can use you know cucumbers that are too big or watermelons that are too small there's all these ways that we should be figuring out how to use it and we produce enough food especially in in the united states that we shouldn't be wasting it uh particularly because there's ways we can get it out there and feed people with it or find ways to to juice it or freeze it or i mean we have all the technology to do something with it naturally uh it's just a matter of willingness to do it um and so i i love that in in particular because i know as a company that's the direction we're going is how do we get to 100 percent sustainability around all of our facilities by 2025 and so you know some of that's getting the farmers like yourself to say hey I, you know, you're growing this way, but, you know, I have a six-year timeline here. You've got to start switching over to organic if you want to continue doing business with us. Otherwise, I need to find someone else because I want to buy locally. I want the products to be quality. And, and like you said, I don't want soil wasted. I don't want things going bad or, or not being done in the proper way that actually in 100% certainty, in my opinion, the food tastes better. Uh, it has more flavor. There's, there's more nutrients coming out of the soil. So it's a pretty amazing thing. So right. Dick, I agree. Dick, I just want to say thank you for coming on the episode and taking the time. And I, you know, and one is I was wondering who was the, the longest running participant in the flavor of Georgia, as well as the most winning, I think, you're probably there. So congratulations on that for sure. Cause I love the flavor George contest. And I think what you've done is, is incredible. Well, you know, it's like I was telling Sharon, she, she and Sharon and, um, and you know, all the others that helped merit and uh, Kent Wolf and all those that have helped keep that contest going because they've worked so hard. The quality of it really is starting to make, make a difference. When you mention the contest now, people's ears perk up. When I first won it, nobody knew but knew about the competition. They didn't know how tough it was. But now that people have seen the influence of it on the products and all of the state of Georgia, all of a sudden they go, "Wow, you've won something that really is prestigious, and it gives you more credibility to your product." Yeah, I think it's an amazing thing, and I've I've only participated in the last four years as a judge, the last four, but the strides that it has made is just incredible, and. It just keeps getting better every year, and I think it's reflecting really what's also happening in Georgia, which is Georgia um, and the food entrepreneurs and beverage entrepreneurs like yourself in Georgia, you guys are starting to produce some incredible, incredible products uh, because of all the opportunities like the flavor of Georgia, because the resources that the state gives you guys. 
um, because things like Georgia Grown um, and what the Department of Agriculture are doing, I think all of it is really, uh, really incredible. So I just want to say thank you again, Dick, for taking the time to be on the episode. And I, You're welcome. And I'd love to have you back on in about, you know, eight to ten months and record another episode so we can release it next year. Because, you know, what we're trying to do is continue to tell your stories, not just tell it once, but tell how things are going, tell how the uh, barbecue sauce is done, tell the story a little bit all the way through. Because I want everyone to c- continue to get to know you guys and what you're doing and uh, the new products that you're coming out with. Sure. and what you're doing with your farm because it's just such an amazing thing that you are doing. So I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to do it. Call me back anytime. I'd love to talk to you. I can talk pretty easy. Not that when I enjoy it and love it, it's easier to talk. And um, so as we wrap things up, if you guys like uh, what you're hearing on the episode, please share it with your, your friends and family. Uh, Dick's just taking his time and quick jumping on a call and, and getting on this podcast to, to share his story uh, because I think it is important and his story is a really great one about being a pioneer and going to organics when no one else was and what all of that means. And so I love his story and please share it with your friends and family and tell people about what he's doing. Obviously look up his products, his blue, his blueberry barbecue sauce will rock your world. I promise. And, uh, so everyone, please share, and thank you again, Dick. Uh, I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm the host of Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. If you want to be on the podcast, please reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook or at justin.bizarro at gmail.com, and that's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O at gmail.com. Thank you guys very much. <laughs>